Hi, um, welcome to season three of our podcast. I'm Mary Abazia, and I'm fortunate to be joined by my colleagues, Tom Spitali and Sean Wellham. Hi, guys. Hi, everybody. Hello, Mary and Sean. Hey, okay. So this is uh, the season that we're calling the Marketing Casebook. And it's because we were asked to look at recent marketing cases. You know, some are successes and <laughs> some are failures. And uh, and help figure out what that means, especially to our B2B clients. Um, so at the end of each podcast, we, we tie it up with, you know, what does this mean possibly to you? Um, Sean, what is today's episode? Tonight's episode... Episode two, the digital choke point. <laughs> okay, John, we need more to this. Go on, keep going. <laughs> well, you know, I, business changes, the environment changes all the time. One of the biggest things that's changed over recent years is, is obviously all the digital technologies and the devices that we all carry and the access we have to information. Um, and that's created what I call a digital choke point. If you can insert your business model in between customers and the thing that they're looking to buy or acquire or use because you're 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 controlling almost like a toll bridge between between two points you can monetize that and we're seeing it more and more across many businesses that 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 third parties are moving into industries not traditionally not by having the typical assets and skills needed to fulfill the customer's need, but rather the ability to collate that demand and and then aggregate it to the supply, become this digital choke point. But I guess that, that's slightly metaphoric. Tom, got any real examples? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, there's a lot of really great examples, some uh, subtle and some not so subtle. I guess the not so subtle ones are companies like uh, that are that are that are you know I, I guess executing this digital choke point companies like Alibaba, Amazon, Airbnb, Facebook, Uber, those are all the ones we know about. So here's a, a, a pop quiz question. What do all of those companies have in common? Anybody want to I wish guess? I'd bought the stock earlier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah not, not. Is it is it um, that they don't own any assets? None of them Am do. I on the right track. So you're both right. They massive, you know, uh, market caps, owning absolutely no assets whatsoever. So they they've executed the digital choke point in the industries that they compete in. But the reason we wanted to talk about this today, and it's more of a general than a specific case, is that almost every industry and even the B2B ones that we work in all the time are, are feeling the effects of this. We see our clients like those that, um, you know, help farmers grow seeds and harvest their crops or get oil out of the ground. We see competitors coming in and kind of hiving off some of the higher margin things that these companies do, like, analyze the data and provide advice to farmers or to companies that are, you know, are, are, are um, producing oil that help them to do it better and smarter. And these types of services in the past for traditional competitors have been really high margin services. And now you've got companies coming in who especially are things like artificial intelligence 
and they don't own any assets to harvest crops or to pull oil out of the ground, but they're bringing a higher level of analytics to this high margin service that the traditional competitors are, are, are used to owning. And so all of this is having a, a major effect on B2B companies and traditional competitors. What are, what are some of the impacts that you guys have seen of this happening to some of our B2B clients? You know, one, one thing, Tom, before that, is just listening to what you were saying, I think it, it's a key distinction to make here that they don't own the traditional assets. I think you said at the end, they don't have the means of getting the oil out of the ground or the means of, say, growing the crops or the means of, of owning a bunch of hotel rooms or, or, or taxi cabs. But they do have assets, right? Their assets are just different. I mean, I mean, Uber raised $24 billion in its various funding rounds to build the platform and to develop the the brand and the operational structure so that they have assets, right? But they're just not those operational assets that you would associate with the industry they're moving into. They've invested into those information assets. And that's a, a key difference. You know, they don't do this for free. They just they just don't they don't do it traditionally, I guess. Yeah. 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 I think well and, and as I think about, you know, it seems obvious if I'm a company and I'm seeing this technology come, I I allocate resources to it. But I think some of the things that we've been seeing that um, that make it uh, disturbing if you're in a company is, um, so we have all this data. So who really owns it? You know, if we're collecting data with our customers, do they own it? Do we own it? Which even opens up a whole new way of looking at, you know, the legal side of it. I mean, the contracts are already crazy when you have very tangible assets that you're working with somebody on. But to, to do it in this, you know... Uh, uber space where um it's a whole new it's it is like the new wild west if you will of of digital but i like what sean's saying about it's at those digital choke points or places where a lot of things come together and there's huge opportunities for smart people to to make something that's complex look simpler in and a do lot you know of what mary you, you mentioned the wild west and it, it gets me thinking that this is you know this is not new this is essentially about rights of way. It's owning a, 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 a bit of land from A to B or a, or a channel from A to B. When the railroads were built across America, it was a massive undertaking and something only a government could do, right? They had to change immigration laws to bring in cheap labor. They had to use the military to protect the assets and, and they had to use eminent domain to take land off people so they could plow through with the railroad lines. And they created these these routes across the country. And when the telegraph companies came along and said, can we use your rights away to put our telegraph poles down the train lines? And, and they did that. Uh, well, I think there was some deal about giving the railroad companies free telegraph, but they gave that away way too cheaply because what the railroad companies owned was that right of way. And they didn't see, I guess, how to monetize it sufficiently. They could have owned, I guess what I'm trying to say is they could have owned the telecommunication <laughs> space because they own that right of way. And it's it's only when you realize the value of where things have to travel, whether that's the customer journey, whether that's information, if you've got an understanding of the rights of way and ownership, then you can start to extract those tolls and, and build stuff around it. It was kind of interesting when you said Wild West, I thought, you know, this isn't really new. This rights of way has existed throughout history. It's just now it's become... Um, I guess, a multi-billion dollar opportunity because of technology. Sean, that's really interesting. And you think about 
you know, the, the, the predecessors to, you know, the, the forms of shipping and, and moving goods before the railways, and they generally became uh, not extinct, but just, you know, much less used, and obviously their market share dropped. And it brings up an, a, an interesting conversation about the traditional competitors who are, are, are being Uberized or, 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 or seeing these digital choke points happening in their industries. What are some of the advantages that do they, that they retain? I mean, should they just completely turn their business model over to to the type of, of uh, that's similar to one of these new competitors? Should they keep going and try to take advantage of the the rights of way that they have right now? I mean, what should they do? You know, it's it's a tricky one, Tom, isn't it? I mean, because if it's if it's too late, it's too late. If somebody's moved into that space, it, it's hard to. Um, be the second mover if someone has done a good job of aggregating the supply and demand side of things. But I guess what you will always own to some extent is that degree of customer intimacy. And that may have different value in different markets, but I don't think we can yet substitute the degree of, of, of understanding the very, very specific customer needs, whether where the rubber meets the road. That That customer interaction the personal element of delivering the service will always remain with you. And I guess when you can't compete on one area, you've got to find another point of differentiation. That's marketing 101. Yeah. So I guess, you know, that's the key to me is, is understand where the value that you're adding is. It's not just about meeting the demand side. It's about how you meet it. And maybe that's it. Maybe you have to be different. What's interesting about what you're saying, and and literally rubber meeting the roads, is where the taxi services really had kind of locked up all the, especially all the metro areas, right? You had to have a license to do it, to be able to operate your cars. And it would look like it was pretty locked up. You know, it w- it didn't seem like it was easy to be a newcomer into the taxi space. And given that we're, you know, talking uh, to some degree about Uber, it is remarkable that they went into a very crowded space. And even though, you know, taxi, you can, you can argue that that's a personal service, right? I mean, you're talking to the person in front of you and, you know, but they figured out those other pain points that, that I, that exist in any of our businesses. And they were able to, to change the game in something that looked locked up. They, they changed it because they said, well, people don't want to sit and dirty cabs and they don't want to wait to see if they're going to get lucky to get a cab on a rainy day. And they don't want to hand their, their credit card to some creepy person they don't know. So they took some of those key points, but I think the most important thing they did, which is a choke hold, but not digital is the legal. I mean, think about what, what digital would, when Uber came in, they also changed the game with remarkable, uh, legal, um, gurus. They just, they knew how to change those laws so that they didn't fall under any of those locked in restrictions. And um, so they, they use that choke, the choke hold in a very different way. And as we saw, you know, even in Paris, all around the world, they did it. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that if you, if you turn that around and you say, how do you combat that? I mean, Uber did an amazing job, like you said, Mary, both technologically and in influencing regu- regulations. The question is, what if you're the traditional competitor 
that um, you know is 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 being Uberized or, or choke holded, if you will. You know what can you what can you do? Ob the obvious thing is to look at what are the points of friction in your industry and figure out before one of these new competitors do how you can remove that friction, how you can make um, a, a better customer experience. So that's kind of like the, the obvious traditional competitor move. But I also think that segmentation plays a key role in here because there, there may be, for example, as Sean said earlier, some customer segments that really appreciate that customer intimacy, the fact that you know a lot about them. And frankly, by default, as a traditional competitor, you have been doing business with them for a long time. These new upstarts aren't. Are you using that data, what you already know about these customers, to create a better customer experience than this upstart can do? That's one of the things that you do is you find those segments that value customer intimacy, maybe also you find those segments that really place a value on um, the fact that a company does have control over the assets of production, if you will, so that they can be assured that those assets are delivered with the highest possible quality. So you look for the quality-seeking segments and attempt to, to, to up the ante there and dominate there. The customer intimacy segments, maybe you attempt to improve the customer experience based on your past knowledge there. And those are some of the things I think that traditional competitors can do to combat these new types of competitors. What do you guys think? Mm -hmm. I totally agree. This, you know, the, the, Whatever happens in business, whether there's a major technological or cultural shift, which is leading to the sorts of businesses that we've talked about, or whether it's just increasing competition as people seek to take more market share from you. You can't lose sight of the of the fundamentals. And you mentioned, Tom, that, that Uber, and it's a really good point, they didn't just step into this, this choke point and say, we can collate the demand and, and parcel out to the supply. They also said, what else sucks about getting a taxi cab? You know, the, the, the fact that you have to pay there and then or, or have cash on you or get your credit card, the fact that you don't know if they're going to turn up or where they are. You know, the, the idea that you could order, see it on a dynamic map that it's coming, jump in the cab, finish your ride, deduct it from your, your, your credit card, know what you're going to be paying roughly. All those things could have been addressed by local taxi firms. And, and, There's nothing to stop them improving that process. So you can, you can reduce your vulnerability to being overtaken by these people if you never stop looking at the customer transaction and where the value is added and sean what i was going to say sorry to interrupt uh, just i just i just wanted to, to make the point maybe in the form of a question how well has you know the yellow cab business responded are they even yet today doing the things that uber is doing you know you don't see it a lot tom i saw one thing though which i thought was really interesting i got a taxi recently to go to a restaurant and i didn't i, I live out in the sticks and uber's not really an option here so i i got a local firm and when i booked them they had an app and i thought well i'll download the app and same thing i could see the car traveling to me and i had the option to make the payment through apple pay and i was thinking wow this is a small local firm that has that has adopted some of uber's better parts 
and applied them. And I, I was pretty impressed that they'd done that. So I think you're going to see more and more people offering similar things. But in terms of general statement, no, I, I, I see people are more more complaining and protesting than 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 maybe trying to compete. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if I think about, you know, what, what does this mean for our, our customers, our clients, if, if you're trying to do this, um, you need insight, as we're saying, and you need to identify those friction points, you know, the points of friction that Tom has talked about um, and the chokeholds that John has talked about. I think that if you um, are not from that industry, from a different planet, if you will. So if you're in a business and you have a lot of different parts of your business, borrow somebody from a very different side of your business to go in and go and watch your customers. We call it the day in the life of, or, you know, week in the life of. But um, every time that we've had customers tell us what works, it's when they say that somebody that's new to their business that really didn't know anything. So when they looked at it, they didn't have any lenses or bias and they said, wow, that customer is frustrated there. They're having to do five steps, and I don't even see why they're doing it. Because once we get into our worlds, we just accept that inefficiency, and we don't see those points of friction as easily. We, we take that for granted. So that's one of the things that I've seen, that, that good companies borrow uh, fresh eyes to look at their businesses and try to find those, those friction points. Tom and Sean, anything else? I would wholeheartedly agree mary i would include that day in the life of two two i would include in addition to that day in the life of idea um doing some complaint discovery mm-hmm. what are customers complaining about that that uncovers these friction points that is really the only long-term strategy in combating these new upstart competitors. I talked about segmentation earlier. I think that's a short-term holding strategy, right? Right now, you probably have a broad, as a traditional competitor, you probably have the broad swath of the market and saying, I'm going to cut back and just focus on a smaller couple of segments here is, is, is probably not a long-term solution. Don't be like yellow, the yellow cab business, although Sean says they're making <laughs> some, some progress. You know, find those uh, friction points through complaint discovery day in the life as fast as possible and and, and update your business accordingly, your value proposition, mm-hmm. I should say. That's good. Sean? I agree. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think we started off talking about a digital choke point in terms of a concept that explained how people can can step in between a customer and a supplier. But it's broadened out, this conversation has broadened out a lot more to be they're not only taking advantage of the digital opportunity to do that, but they're also improving the offer. And if you lack the wherewithal or the ability or the desire to to to, to own that channel, to become the next Uber, then at least you can protect your business by focusing on those improvement points and, and making you less vulnerable for that sort of uh, disaggregation that, that could happen. So I, I think it's it's really, really moved on. The digital choke point has created these opportunities, but the response to them uh, for traditional competitors is probably no different than it's always been. It's just become more important to actually do it and not just think about it. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Um, please go to the accidentalmarketer.com site and you can click on the podcast button and you'll see other podcasts. Um, and you can also give us uh, suggestions on our iTunes page. We always appreciate ratings. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs>